Good morning, church. Uh, thank you, William Stoney, for that. That was very, very sweet. We have some great shepherds um, praying for us and on our team, and we're really thankful for y'all. Um, like they were saying, my name is Annika, and this is Tyler. Um, we get to serve as the youth ministers here at Sycamore View. Uh, just a little bit about us. We are both from the Nashville area, from Middle Tennessee. We both went to Lipscomb University in Nashville, go by sins. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for the laugh. And um, we graduated from there in May of 2022, got married in August of 2022. And then a month later, we moved here and we started as youth ministers. And we're really, really thankful um, for the work that we get to do. We're thankful um, to work with your students and with your children. They're awesome. It really, really blesses us and teaches us. Um, and we're thankful to be with you. We're thankful that we're trusted to speak to you this morning. Um, so while I'm telling you about me, there's something that you should know before we go any further. This is about me, not Tyler. <laughs> this is my personal thing. Um, I want to talk about someone who's really, really impacted my life, who has been with me for a long time, um, and who's really, really made me into who I am today, and that person is Taylor Swift. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Doesn't she look pretty up there? Um, Taylor Swift came out with her first album in 2006, and I was a fan then. Her last album came out about two weeks ago, and I'm still a fan. I can tell you um, what year of my life each album came out. I know all the songs. I know her parents' names. I know her cats' names. I know where she's got her vacation homes. I know a lot about this woman, maybe too much. Um, but if you were to say, Annika, do you know Taylor Swift? I'll say, no, I do not know Taylor Swift. I know a lot about Taylor Swift, but I've never talked to her. I've never had a conversation. I don't know what it would be like to um, have her give me advice or to spend time with her. I wish I did. And Taylor does not know me. She doesn't even know about me. She does not know me at all. Um, I know about Taylor Swift, but I do not know her. There's not a relationship there. Um, and last Sunday, Josh Ross, he's on sabbatical. We miss him. Hi, Josh, in case he watches later. But um, he set up for us last week the series that we're in, and it's called Known. It's about knowing God and being known by God. And our prayer for this series as we kick off the next couple weeks about um, talking about these characteristics of God and these stories of God, we hope that you move from hearing these stories and having head knowledge about these characteristics, we hope you move to knowing God on a personal level. We don't want you to know God like I know Taylor Swift and have her have him memorized. Um, we want you to know God like you know a friend. We hope that these stories about God and about his character push you to sit with him and experience him and see these characteristics played out in your own life as we move forward because uh, God already knows you and loves you very much. So we hope that uh, this series pushes you to do that. Um, if you want to turn your, in your Bibles to Exodus 2, that's where we're going to be starting out this morning. We're going to be talking about God the Deliverer. Good morning, church. Um, so before we jump into the content of the message this morning, uh, I want to just jump back in time a little bit, give us a little bit perspective on how much time has just passed over the last couple hundred years or so uh, as we look to the text. So we're just going to look at a few things that happen uh, culturally, globally, all those sorts of things. So 10 years ago, uh, the word selfie was added to the dictionary. Now, there might be people in this room 
I'm thinking this back corner over here thinking, I thought the word selfie's been around since Jesus was here, and it wasn't. Uh, and there might be other people in the room this morning thinking, what's a selfie? Um, and you can read the definition right up there if you'd like. But 10 years ago, the word selfie added to the dictionary. I was in like 7th or 8th grade when this happened. I remember it being a really big deal for some reason. Um, and also, uh, just to get a little more perspective on time, I threw a picture of me up there uh, playing basketball. That's me shooting some free throws for Page Middle School. Just to see like how much I've grown in the last 10 years uh, as a person, uh, going from being in 8th grade now to being a 24-year-old up here with you this morning. So that's 10 years ago. And then 50 years ago, uh, the first, yeah, there we go. The first cell phone was ever created by Motorola. Now, it took them 10 more years to come out with a cell phone to actually sell to people, but the first prototype of a cell phone came out 10, er, 50 years ago. And also, the debut of Schoolhouse Rock was 50 years ago. So if you're familiar with the Bill on the Hill, that was 50 years ago. And then almost 100 years ago, the United States went through the Great Depression. Now, when I was growing up, learning about this in school, it might as well have been 500 years ago. Um, it, the time was just so far ago, but it was actually less than 100 years ago. And I, like studying for this, I was surprised to find that out. I thought it was still like 200 years ago that happened. Turns out it was less than 100. And then 247 years ago, the United States was founded as an independent nation. Now that's 247 years. That's a lot of history that's happened over 247 years. But the number I want to focus on this morning is 430. 430 years Israel was in the land of Egypt. 430 years Israel was held captive by their oppressors. 430 years Israel cried out for help and for deliverance. And the people of God were stuck in a place, in a nation that was not their own for what seemed to be another 430 years. And maybe they were lamenting in a way like Psalm 13 of, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me. And maybe you have been or are in a place right now where you feel these words, that, that you've felt or, or you feel alone in a struggle or a sin or a health issue or family dynamic or whatever it may be in your life that brings you to a place where you feel that the, that the enemy is triumphing over you in your life. And this morning, we want to acknowledge that if you are in that place where these words in Psalm 13 ring true of, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? That God is still moving in our midst and his plan does not end in suffering, but in total defeat of the enemy and our rejoicing in his kingdom forever. Or if you have been delivered from whatever it may be in your life. We hope that this morning is a time for you to reflect and to rejoice for how God has moved in your midst. So as we move from one side of the Red Sea to the other, we hold both of these realities in our hands. So in Exodus 2, we see the people of God crying out because of the oppression that they had faced for the last couple hundred years. And we hear a few words as God responds, and we read that God heard their groaning, that God 
remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God saw his people and that God knew. And with these words, there's a little more depth to them than what we read when we open up our English translations and read these words. They're all pointing towards the action of God. And so this word heard here is God hears the crying out and is going to respond to. The word remembered as he remembers his covenant is going to take action on behalf of that covenant. And the word saw is this seeing and moving towards his people with kindness and sympathy. And the word knew is not a gaining knowledge of what's been unfolding in Egypt for the last 400 years, but a knowing as if it is his own experience. And so from chapter 2 on, we're going to see God move towards his people and take action for his people. So in the suffering of the people of Israel, God is going to deliver them from the evil that they're in, but in a way that they never would have expected. And this is who God is. He is a God that sees us, who hears us, who remembers us, and knows our experience as his own, and will deliver us from sin, evil, and death. And it may be in our time, but we live into this great hope for the final deliverance of God as he tramples the enemy once and for all. And with this word, knows, at the end of Exodus 2, I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 4, where we read that Jesus is the great high priest who knows the temptations that we face, who knows the suffering of humanity, and who knows death intimately. And there's a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, that I always am drawn back to when I think about God knowing what I'm going through. If you go to the next slide, he says this. He says, you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And then a few sentences later, he says this. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And now we have all fallen short and we have all fallen to sin except for Jesus. And this is why I find so much hope and comfort in this word no. Is that our God is not a God who is a far off God who created and stepped away from his creation, but a God who created and came close and walked on this earth and knows to the fullest what it is like to experience joy, to experience laughter, to experience a good meal, to experience temptation, to experience suffering, and to experience death. So in this moment in Exodus 2 of God hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing, we see a God who is not just going to act on behalf of his people, but he's going to wipe out what stands against them. So God hears, remembers, sees, and knows the suffering of his people then and of his people now as he moves towards us, as he delivers us. This, oh, the Exodus is a super powerful and well-known story, not only to us, um, but to the Hebrews as well, to the Jewish people. This is the story that their kind of whole faith and view of God is built on, but also the Exodus story kind of has a grip on our culture as well. Um, there's been a lot of movies, uh, Ten Commandments. I remember I used to watch that at Christmas for some reason. I don't know why we did that at Christmas with my family, but whatever. Um, I loved The Prince of Egypt. It's a more animated movie that's been made out of this story. Um, and the Exodus is a crazy story. I think it's well known and really important, and it draws us in because 
God chooses to rescue his people, and he does so with this massive and amazing display of power. Um, God, in partnership with Moses, opposes Pharaoh, and first he does that with the plagues. Um, there's a river, a whole river of blood, um, a nation in darkness. If you were in Memphis this summer, you know what it's like to have it be dark for weeks at a time. So kind of we have that experience. We know what they went through a little bit. But gnats, if I had come up against gnats, I would have said, all right, God, you got it. Take the people. I'm done. But uh, the plagues are crazy. And I think we're a little numb to them because we teach them to kids or maybe we've just heard them so many times. So they kind of lose their oomph a little bit. But if you have time uh, in the near future and you're looking for something to read, I would encourage you to go back to the Exodus and just read it with fresh eyes and uh, just let yourself be hit by the wonder and the power of this God. Uh, There's no denying that this God is powerful and he's mighty. And then after the plagues, we arrive at this final huge display of deliverance uh, at the Red Sea. And if you'll turn to Exodus 14, I'm going to be reading... uh, verses 21 through 25. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So, in case you got lost in all that, God is behind the Israelites. He's in a a pillar of fire and a pillar, pillar of cloud making sure that Israel and Egypt don't touch each other all night long. He's also splitting the sea. Um, and letting an entire nation, not just 50 people, not just 100 people, a big nation of people through the sea on dry ground. And also, he's messing with the Egyptians back there. He's confusing them. He's jamming up their wheels, um, so much so that they take notice, and they say, we got to get away from these people. God is fighting for them. So God leads and protects Israel, and he makes a way through what seems impossible. After 400 years of slavery and silence, God sees and remembers, and then he delivers. Uh, The Bible says this at the end of Exodus 14. that kind of sums up the Red Sea story. This is uh, verse 29 through 31. It says, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And they lived happily ever after, right? Right? Wouldn't that be the perfect place to just end the book? It kind of reads like an epilogue. Um, And I think we want to stop there for the Israelites, and we want to stop there maybe in our own lives as well. But the bad news is... There's 36 more chapters in Exodus, and if you're familiar with the story of Israel at all, you know that they have a long and occasionally painful walk in front of them. But wouldn't it be nice to stay on that shore, right? Um, How many of y'all are parents or moms? Okay, I'm not one, so not speaking from experience, but when you deliver a child and you deliver a baby, 
there is, of course, relief and celebration in your leaving a phase, but I would not say deliverance is an ending, right? You've got 18 years of changing diapers and, I don't know, kids' birthday parties, and you've got all the things in front of you. You've got a lifetime commitment when you deliver a baby. Deliverance is not the ending, but deliverance is a beginning. And if you're familiar with the story of Israel and Exodus, you know that's the case with them. Israel's deliverance is just the beginning. Um, and I think a lot of us are in this spot as well. Uh, when we give our lives to Jesus, we want to say, all right, I'm done now. We want to say, um, I'm done with my struggles with sin and temptation. And maybe if those feelings come up, if that temptation hits again, we say, didn't I already do this? Am I not already a Christian? Shouldn't I be past this? Shouldn't I be over this? Or maybe you've been praying for deliverance from your pain or from suffering or uh, family situation. You've been praying for that deliverance. And then when God answers and he delivers, you're surprised to find that life isn't perfect after that. Uh, in fact, your life is still really, really hard after that. Um, I grew up in a really, really great community. I grew up going to a school. I went to the same school from kindergarten to senior year, um, and I had a great church family. I had a really, really strong group of people supporting me, and I just felt very confident, and I felt like I had a place. I felt very, very uh, secure in who I was. And then I started my freshman year at Lipscomb, and my world got a little bit rocked. Uh, I was away from my people and everything I knew, and I just found myself uh, very insecure and anxious and lonely and feeling all these things that I had just never had to walk through before. Um, and these feelings really, really pushed me, thankfully. They pushed me to pursue the Lord in a new way. Um, and I found myself praying all the time, asking for deliverance from these feelings and deliverance from that situation. And the Lord became my best friend because he really was my only friend. Uh, and so there was really not much of a choice there. Uh, but the Lord eventually did answer that prayer and delivered me from that season. And I found myself in a really, really great community at Lipscomb, too, um, but my life wasn't perfect after that. Surprise, surprise, the Lord delivered me, and he still had a place that he wanted to bring me after that. Um, now God has delivered Israel, and he has a place that he wants to bring them. After their rescue and their deliverance, God still has to teach them about what it means to walk with him on the other side of the Red Sea. God doesn't deliver people for fun or because he just feels like it. He has a purpose for the people that he delivers. He not only delivers them from something, but God delivers his people to something so much better. So, like Annika just said, that whenever we see God delivering in Scripture, he's always delivering people or someone from something to something uh, so much greater than what they're leaving behind. Uh, and so we're going to move from the shore of the Red Sea through the wilderness and come to Mount Sinai. Um, and so with us and with Israel, uh, God is desiring for a change or a reorientation of our hearts where we go from being caught up in the things of the world or uh, ourselves to being solely focused on him and his redemptive work. But it begins in 
the heart. And so over the next few minutes, we're going to go through three different moves of what God is delivering his people then from uh, and what he's delivering them to. And this goes for us as well today. So God delivers them from enslavement to covenant. Now, Annika and I have been married for um, about a year and three months. So that means that we've pretty much got marriage figured out, um, right? Yeah. Uh, so a year and three months, it's been awesome living together, the whole thing, working together. But before that, there was 24 years where I was a single guy. Uh, I only had to care about myself. Every decision I made was based on what I was wanting to do. My energy was going towards the thing that I cared about. Um, and that's 24 years also of me making some poor decisions, of me making some good decisions, and 24 years of God shaping me into who I am today as he continues to shape me. But a year and three months ago, Anik and I enter into this new covenant, and immediately I start to see that in those 24 years, I had built up some real selfishness inside of me, only having to care for and think about myself and what I was wanting to do. And so this new covenant was coming up against 24 years of programming in my heart, and it was being displayed uh, outwardly through just me not helping out doing the dishes or anything like that. Um, and just my mom, my mom's watching. She knows that guy doesn't do the dishes. I know that guy. Um, but 24 years of, of that going on, and then this new covenant I enter into, and I have to start to reshape my heart uh, and, and lean into this new covenant. And how do I leave behind kind of this fruit of selfishness that's grown up inside me and live into and give honor and glory to God through this covenant? And so God desires to shape the heart of an entire people away from their oppression and their slavery and from the gods of Egypt that they were around for so long, and he's shaping them into his heart. And there's a moment after they, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and the, the sea is back to normal. The Egyptians are gone, and the Israelites are free people. But there's 430 years of slavery, oppression, and the gods of Egypt that live inside their hearts. So God has now gotten Israel out of slavery, but God needs to get the slavery out of Israel. And so God takes them and gives them the Ten Commandments as a way not to just give them, here's ten, ten rules to live your life by, but to call them into deeper freedom and being a people of God who are going to work with God to be a part of the redemption of the world. And Jesus is up to the same stuff. When we are baptized in our own little Red Sea moment, we are going from being enslaved to sin to being free in Christ. But there is still sin, there's still struggle, there's still suffering that we need to be delivered from because the delivery is just the beginning of what God is calling us into. And so what we see at, at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments is to free the people once and for all from the slavery that they were in. And Jesus calls us into changing our hearts to be totally transformed, totally delivered into his image and into his kingdom. So just like Israel, we are in need of our hearts being transformed after we are delivered from enslavement of sin to covenant with Christ. God wants a heart change. He wants our inner lives to look different 
Um, but God also wants to work on our outer lives, how we look as well. Um, God delivered Israel from being foreigners and strangers in Egypt, Egypt to being a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So I'm going to read, we're now in Exodus um, 19, 3 through 6, and this is after the Red Sea, it's a, a few months have passed, and Israel is at Mount Sinai, and Moses and God are having this meeting, he, God is about to give the Ten Commandments, and this is what God says before that. It says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So God wants Israel to become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Israel has spent 400 years in a place serving a nation and a kingdom that isn't their own. And I think it's really, really hard for us to really grasp this concept, what this might be like. Um, but Israel really hasn't been their own people in a long time. They've been slaves of another. All they've really known is working towards Pharaoh's w will and feeling out of place in a land that really doesn't belong to them. Um, God wants Israel to not only become their own people, become their own nation, but he wants them to be a, a holy one. The def definition of holy is to be separate and to be set apart. Um, and God's vision, vision for Israel is to become a nation unlike any other. God is tasking Israel to be a kingdom of people who mediate, who go between God and the rest of the world, um, who live a holy life, not just for their own sake, but so the whole world can see. Um, and if that language sounds familiar, that um, holy nation, royal priesthood, it might be because First Peter, Peter echoes these words for the church. We are now God's holy nation and his kingdom of priests. God has delivered me and you so that we can pursue holiness, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us who are lost. Our life should look different so that people can see and they can ask, what's going on with her? What's going on with him? What do they have that I don't have? Um, why are they kind when it's hard? Why do they separate themselves from situations they shouldn't be in? If you have been delivered, know that God wants you to be a beacon of light for others as they look around in a world of darkness. And the last thing that um, God delivers from and to, and I think this is the most important one, uh, God is delivered from a pharaoh to a father. Israel has lived under the control of Pharaoh for many, many years. Um, and we don't get a ton of background on this Pharaoh, but we can tell he's a piece of work, okay? He's a bad man. Um, in the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh sees that Israel is getting bigger. He says, there's a lot of them, and we don't want them to turn on us. We don't want them to be more powerful than us. So he instates this mass genocide of baby boys. Um, and then after that, he makes life grueling and difficult. For Israel just because, just to make their life harder and life's bitter, he doubles their workload. And then later when Moses, it's a different Pharaoh when Moses comes and um, the plagues happen, but this guy doesn't seem to be that much better. Um, over and over and over again, Moses asks the Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh says no. Over and over and over again, out of the hardness of his heart, even though it's hurting his own people, 
the plagues are hurting the Egyptians, and Pharaoh says, no, I can't let you go out of the hardness of my own heart. And this is what Israel knows. Pharaoh rules over the Israelites with no mercy and absolute control. And what a complete 180 to now be living life with a father like the one that we know, right? Israel now has a father who heard their cry and was moved by it, not a father that heard their cry and doubled their workload. He carried Israel on, Israel on eagle's wings to himself. The people are completely safe and protected by a father who has rescued them. And I know that not all of us have great associations or experiences with our earthly fathers. Um, and I want to acknowledge that and say, we see you. But I do want you to know that you have a heavenly father that cares for you and that's pursuing you before anything else. This love changes who Israel is, and this love changes who we are. God has delivered you most of all because he's the kind of father who wants to be close with his children. Pharaoh wanted Israel to do his dirty work, and he wanted to control them. God doesn't need us to accomplish anything. He doesn't want to control us. He rescues us because he delights in us. Your father doesn't want any kind of distance between you. All he wants from you is your closeness. So, God delivers his people from enslavement to sin, to covenant with him. He delivers us from being foreigners and strangers to a holy nation with Christ as king. And he delivers us from Pharaoh to the Father, whom we now find our freedom in. And as we look to Jesus, we see 400 years of silence before Jesus is born, which reflects the 400 years of Israel and Egypt. But when Jesus is born, he takes this path that leads to the cross. And at the cross is the, the scene of the final exodus, where the enemy is defeated and Jesus is now crowned king over all of creation. And in a moment, we're going to get up uh, and, and come to the tables to take communion, and we'll have our prayer partners in the back. I think Levernice will be on this side, Suzanne will be on this side, Lance will be in the back, and Randy will be right up here to my right. Annika and I will be down to our left. But before we do that, I want to come back to Psalm 13 one more time. There's two realities that we can have when we're coming to the table this morning. You may be in a place in this psalm of how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long Will you hide your face from me? Or you could be, I'll rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And both of these realities are welcomed at God's table. Both of these realities start with the same of struggle and sin of suffering, but both of these realities end in eternal rejoicing with the Father. So as we come to the tables this morning, know that the God who created in the beginning is here in this place now, and we are back home with Christ and his kingdom that will re be rejoicing for eternity. So let us commune with the God who delivers us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God who delivers us. Father, I just pray for uh, anyone in the room right now where, where they feel this, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Father, let them know that, that your peace and your comfort is available to them, and you love them, and you will deliver them.
God, we thank you for people that are in this room right now who get to rejoice at what you've delivered them from, and we thank you for your deliverance. And Father, we cannot wait for Jesus to come and set all things right in this final and ultimate deliverance where we get to be with you and rejoice with you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.